Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hey there, Baha'i Blogcast listeners. It's me, Rain Wilson, and I am coming to you today this podcast from scenic Chelsea Harbour Hotel in London. I've been working in England and uh, really just falling in love with this country. It's a really cool place. I'm very intrigued by the culture and the people and having a great time. And one of the bounties, one of the privileges of being here is meeting some really incredible British Baha'is that I've admired for a super long time. And I've got one here sitting next to me. Dr. Mujan Momen is here. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Yes, thank you for uh, asking me to have this interview. Oh, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. I've read several of your books throughout the years. You've written so many books, including Baha'i History and books on the Buddhism and the Baha'i Faith and Hinduism and the Baha'i Faith, uh, a scholar as well as a medical doctor, which is great because in case I have some kind of weird tumor explode inside of my abdomen... There's no one else I'd rather have next to me. All he needs is a plastic knife and a towel and a hot pot, all of which can be found in this hotel room, and he'll stitch me right up. Isn't that right, Doc? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I can certainly try. <laughs> so let's start at the very beginning. I know in, when someone is reading or studying your work, they don't get to know too much about you personally, and I'd love to just start with who you are and what you're about. We chatted a little bit the other day, and you said that you are a kid in uh, Tehran? I, I was actually born in Tabriz, the town where the martyrdom of the Bab took place. But that mm-hmm. was, uh, my family were not from Tabriz. It was because my father was in the Iranian Air Force and was stationed there. Um, but, but by that time, my family were all based in Tehran when I was about uh, two years old. So what, what brought you to uh, Great Britain? Okay, well, when I, just after we moved back to Tehran, my father passed away Um, I was three at that time, and my mother decided that the best uh, thing for our education would be to come to England. Um, Now, that was in 1955, and in that time, uh, for effectively was a single woman, to come to England was a a, a big thing. It was a a very brave thing to even contemplate going to a a new culture, a a language she didn't know, to to have... um, uh, all of her ties that she, all the network of friends and so on that she had built up in Iran, leave them all behind and go to a completely new country. And it wasn't even as though the the traveling there was particularly easy. You didn't hop on a plane and you were in England. Uh, five or six hours later, you you uh, we would we traveled overland first of all by bus, then by boat, then by train, then when we got to the English Channel, boat again, then train again. It was a long haul, difficult journey. All, all of these places, not knowing the language, trying to work out how to get to the next stage of the journey. It was very difficult. Mm. And then what made you choose being a doctor? And why did you go down that path? It's actually difficult for me to say because I sort of drifted into medicine. I, I liked sciences. I liked biological sciences. One of the courses that was open was medicine. And I looked into that and I thought, yes, I'd like to do that. So it sort of it led on from... Um, uh, sort of my interest in science. 
Okay, great. Actually, I wanted to be an atomic physics physicist, to tell you the truth, oh, yeah. at that time. But my, my maths wasn't strong enough, so I went into the biological oh, science. Oh, okay, okay, good. Your math wasn't strong enough. Good. No, no. You're, you're one flaw. You've written 27 <laughs> books and uh, a scholar on all these different things, but we know now your secret, that you're terrible at math. Just admit it. Yes, I am. I am. Um, that's great. And how does that work, uh, being a doctor and then also being, I guess... You, you call yourself a, you know, a researcher of the Baha'i faith, but maybe you could say academic, but a very serious, close academic study of Baha'i history, of the writings, of themes, of interfaith dialogues, a study of other religions and practices. You're also an authority on, you wrote a book on Shiite Islam. How did you marry those two? How did you balance those two things? And were they ever at odds? It's kind of unique. I certainly know other Baha'is that are what you would call a Baha'i scholar. Usually they work in academia a little bit more or they're a teacher or something like that, but I've never heard of a, of a doctor who's also a, an academic. Um, well, I basically I chose doing general practice or being a family physician, um, especially because it, it gives you more flexibility. You can go into that there, there are various types of practice. You can go into a busy practice and earn a lot of money. Or you can go into a less busy practice and le- earn less money but have more time off. And I sure. chose that, the second alternative, uh, so I would have more time off so I could do this other work, basically. And what what sparked your interest in, in your research? What was the first thing you dove into? <clears throat> I guess I was always interested in Baha'i history. I read Dawnbreakers and, and sort of knew that fairly well. And then Mr. Hassan Balusi's book on Abdul Baha came out. And I was reading that and uh, I noticed that one of the footnotes at the back of the book said that uh, a particular document about the, in fact, about the 1903 Yazd persecutions that my family had been involved in, um, it, it said at the back of the book that these documents can be found in the public record office in London. He just makes a very brief reference to it. So I said, well, if he can sort of find this brief reference, there must be more there. Mm-hmm. So I started going to the public record office and, and um, looking up stuff, and sure enough, there was a lot of material there. Uh, there was a British ambassador in the Tehran, and there were British consuls in various places, and and all of these were sending reports of what was happening, and of course, one of the things that was happening was the persecution of the Baha'is. So there were reports about various episodes. And, um, and that's a very interesting part of Baha'i history, whereas with Christianity, there's you know, two total references, I think, to Jesus in the in the works of the Roman scholars of the time, uh, which definitely proves he existed, but um, there isn't a whole lot to go on. But with the Baha'i faith, I know, and in the Dawnbreakers, there's all those French footnotes, and there's the Russian uh, scholarship as well, and, and uh, you know, all the, the foreign bodies that were stationed there, and there's E.G. Brown and many other people, you know, writing about all of this stuff, that makes the Baha'i faith particularly kind of unique. Um, And what did you learn about digging into all of these accounts? Well, what what happened was that um, I I started doing some of this research and I photocopied some documents related to the attempt on the life of the Shah in 1852. And my uncle was visiting and I showed these to him. And he was a particular friend of Mr. Baliuzzi's and uh, took them and showed them to him. And 
through my uncle, a message came to me from Mr. Baluzi saying that he'd like to meet me. And hand, this was Hand of the Cross Baluzi, yes, who, uh, who lived who lived in, in England. London, who at lived the in time. London, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I was in London at this time. I was a medical student in Guy's Hospital, London. Um, so I, I went to meet Mr. Baluzi, and he was at that time writing his book on the Barb, and he wanted some material. He didn't want his book just to be an abbreviation of the Dawnbreakers. He wanted to have something in sure. there that was new. So he encouraged me to go back to the public record office and start systematically from 1844, working through all the records to see exactly what there was. So that's how I got sort of delving deeper into it. I was sort of under his direction, going into the records, finding what I could. And, and, uh, and from what I understand, um, Mr. Belluzzi had a, a number of health problems that kept him from traveling and speaking as much as he did in his, his early days. What was that like working with him? He's a hand of the cause, I would say, that a lot of the Western buys don't know very much about other than his books and his scholarship. Yes, he, he was, I mean, he played a very important role in the history of the Baha'i community in, in Britain, uh, right from the 1930s when he first came to England onwards, and, and he was on the National Spiritual Assembly. In fact, he was the chairman of the National Spiritual Assembly. And so he had a very active role in the Baha'i community. But when I knew him, and from about 1963 onwards, uh, 1963 was the World Congress that was held in London, High World Congress, and from that time onwards, he, he his health deteriorated, and um, so he decided that rather than travelling about and you know giving talks and so on, he would concentrate on his um, writing. He had written a small book on the on Baha'u'llah uh, during the lifetime of Shoghi Effendi, and Shoghi Effendi had written him a letter saying, uh, you know, that he was very pleased with this book and encouraging him to then. Uh, complete it by writing a book on the Bab and on Abdul Baha as well. Uh, and so he felt, Mr. Baluzi felt obliged to sort of carry out this. Mm. So he, 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 he's decided to just concentrate on his researches and his writing. And he started writing these books um, on the Bab. Well, first of, the first one he wrote was on Abdul Baha. Um, there was a side book from that on E.G. Brown. Um, that was really a large footnote to the book on Abdu'l-Bahá. Uh, and then he went on to the Bab and, and uh, finally he went back to Baha'u'llah, having written two big books on the Bab and, and Abdu'l-Bahá. He felt he couldn't just leave that small book that he had on Baha'u'llah. So he wrote a second book on Baha'u'llah, much much enlarged and, and more detailed. Hmm. And do you have any personal stories or reminiscences of working with him? Is there something about his character or wisdom or history that you could share with us? Well, he was very, very, I mean, what I learned from him was, was the care he took over getting the facts right. He was very, very particular to always sort of go to the sources, try and dig and dig and dig deeper and write off to various people to, who might know more information. Even though, and, and the, all of that effort might only end up as one sentence in the book, but if he needed to know, if, if he was unsure about it, he would he would dig, dig, dig until he got the answer and he was happy with it and so on. So he was very thorough in that way. And he, he was also a great believer in just telling it as it was, not trying to cover up anything, uh, but, but really to sort of um, just 
tell the story as it was. You know, not, not all the Baha'is were perfect and uh, some made mistakes and so on, but, but to tell it as it was because that, in a sense, makes it easier for later generations of Baha'is to relate to those early Baha'is, sure. knowing, knowing that they weren't totally perfect, but nevertheless, they tried. Mm. Mm. So in your studies and your research and history, you'd mentioned earlier that you discovered some interesting documents about early meetings with Abdu'l-Bahá in the Holy Land. Yes, I was very interested to find a, a number of reports of Europeans who came to the Haifa Aka area for various reasons. Some of them were missionaries, some of them were travelers. And in the course of their travels, they, they met Abdu'l-Bahá and their accounts of of Abdu'l-Bahá really from the time he was a young man are, are very interesting. As early as 1871, a British missionary doctor who met Abdu'l-Bahá praises Abdu'l-Bahá very highly, talking about his knowledge of the Christian scriptures of the Bible, wow. uh, which um, given that Abdu'l-Bahá had never had any formal studies of the Bible, uh, had never sort of sat with any um, anybody to learn the Bible, is amazing that a missionary who is in effect a, a Christian teacher should be praising Abdu'l-Bahá's knowledge mm. of the Christian scriptures. And uh, a couple of years later, there was another missionary who wrote about Abdu'l-Bahá talking. This is uh, Abdu'l-Bahá in his 20s. Um, yes, I mean, 1871. Was, he was born in 1844. So 27 years yeah, old. Yeah, that's right. And, and a, a couple of years later, there was another missionary who, uh, and both of these two talk about his skill in presenting proofs, uh, his ability to sort of bring up the, the proof that is relevant to the to the listener, as it were. Were these American or English or uh, English. French? Or? No, they, these were British missionaries, um, uh, basically. Where did you find these documents? Um, I, I was chasing up one set of documents. Uh, one of these was published in The Times, the British newspaper, The Times. Uh, and uh, that was the first one. And the second one was in the missionary records that the British had a, a, a missionary society called the Church Missionary Society, which was active in the Haifa area um, and was also active in Iran, actually. So there were also accounts of the Baha'is in Iran in their records. And so I, I went to the to their records. Uh, at that time, they had a, um, a records department in London. Um, and I looked through their records and found these accounts. That's fascinating. And when you were doing this research for Baliuzi, out of that in some way emerged the Afnan Library Trust. Is that right? I really don't know much about it. Could you fill us in on that? Yes, Mr. Baliuzi, when he passed away, I mean, he talked about it with me before he passed away, but when he passed away, his will had a couple of handwritten notes attached to the will in which he expressed the desire that his collection of books and papers should be set up as the core of a Baha'i research library for the benefit, and these are his exact words, for the benefit of all who seek knowledge. And that was it. It was it was basically a couple of handwritten notes. Um, he'd also spoken to me about it before he passed away and given me some instructions about it. And uh, so when he passed away, that's really what we had. And what we did then was to set up a charitable trust, registered it with the United Kingdom government as a charity. And finally, we've now got a building 
not very far from where I live, which is actually an old Baptist chapel converted into a two-story building. And are these Balyuzi's books and, and papers, but there are other people have contributed as well? Well, since since Mr. Balyuzi passed away, we've been collecting material. We've been obviously collecting more Baha'i books that have been published. Um, we've been collecting, some people have given us their papers, their collections of Baha'i books. Do you have the Bassoon King in there? I don't know. You don't even honestly. know what I'm talking about, do you? Um, That's I, my book. Yes, I know, I know. I, 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 <laughs> just, I, 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 I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. It should not be in there. If it is in there, find oh. it and destroy it. Is it? Oh, okay. It's not even, okay. Uh, not even I, worthy. I, I really don't know because it's my daughter who, who catalogs all these. Um, uh, my daughter, Carmel, works there um, a few days a week and, and she does all the cataloging of the English language books. So the title sounded familiar, so we may well have it. But I don't. yes, we've been we've been expanding we, uh, and, and um, lots of other people have given their collections of Baha'i books when they passed away or even before they passed away and papers. And we've now developed an online library where we're scanning some of the older books and materials that we have and putting them online. Um, so we're sort of developing the library on, on various fronts. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, um, you've written so many books and papers, and a lot of them have been in academic journals and have been peer-reviewed and read. Most academics are not very religiously inclined or spiritually inclined for that matter. It's certainly very kind of a secular space. Uh, it's a materialistic kind of space. How do you How do you balance that work when you're writing about history and also about mysticism and other things. And how do you deal with that? What challenges have you had? Well, I think if you enter that world, you've got to enter it on their terms. You know, you've got to, in a sense, accept that it is what it is. And if you're going to be successful in publishing material in that world, you've got to, as it were, do it according to their rules. Uh, Otherwise, you just won't get published. But my criteria has always been to write material that is both acceptable to the academic world and acceptable to the Baha'is. So in other words, it it sort of fulfills a dual criterion, which I find is not all that difficult to do. I I think Baha'is quite often appreciate getting material that is written in a slightly sort of more neutral way mm-hmm. and as i say uh, because i'm i'm interested in subjects like sociology and anthropology and so on i uh, quite often i'm i'm looking at bahai history from a, a viewpoint that bahais are not familiar with and so they 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 appreciate getting this new viewpoint on their own history but at the same time i'm keeping to the academic criteria the academic methodology um, you wrote a book called The God of Baha'u'llah? Uh, yeah, it was actually an article in a book, yeah. Okay. Um, who or what is the God of Baha'u'llah? Well, the, the purpose of writing that article was that um, there is a, a paper had been written by a, a French scholar called Schuller who wrote basically that as far as he could see, the God of Baha'u'llah was the Abrahamic God of the sort of Semitic religions, the, the sort of Judeo-Christian Muslim line. Uh, and he was just sort of saying that. And I wrote this paper to say that, well, yes and no. Um, the God of Baha'u'llah is a much more subtle and nuanced figure, if you like, in the sense that what Baha'u'llah basically says is that we have no way of actually knowing anything about God very much because 
God is sort of infinite and our finite minds cannot possibly comprehend that infinite. And so all we can do is to create pictures of God from our viewpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we create is true for us from our viewpoint about God, but is not the total truth about God. And other cultures and other peoples from looking at this phenomenon from a different viewpoint can come up with a completely different picture, which is true from their viewpoint. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting that I was listening to something recently, I forget who was saying it, and it might have even been you, so forgive me if, if I'm quoting you, but it would be as if dogs could have a conversation about humans. Mm -hmm. And they would say, well, humans can run like us, and they know how to throw sticks, and they eat kind of some similar foods and stuff mm. like that, and they would only see it from a dog's viewpoint. I thought that was a really interesting way. Yeah. But, of course, they wouldn't have any idea, like, humans write poetry or have a cognizance of life after death or their own mortality, can create a, a motherboard in a computer, can create a film and they sit in a theater and watch it on a screen. And there's, I mean, there's so many other levels mm. and how much more infinitely greater the distance between mm. human and, and the divine than just a dog and a human being. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's a very apt analogy. And Abdu'l-Bahá makes more or less the same point. He says that, that that every level of creation is incapable of of comprehending the level above it. It can it can sort of comprehend or encompass the levels below it, but it can't even start to comprehend the levels above it. And that applies at every level of the physical world, from the mineral to the plant to the animal to the human, and then going beyond the human to the uh, prophets of God, the manifestations of God and God. All of these uh, levels are incapable of, of comprehending the level above. All they can do is to report what they regard as the truth. And unfortunately, human beings tend to think that what they see as the truth is the truth, the absolute right. truth, mm -hmm. but actually it's only their truth. And we should, for a start, be very tolerant of other people expressing other truths about this ultimate reality that, mm -hmm. that we in the West call God and other cultures call by other names. I know my mom <coughs> is on a kick right now of reading about unified field theory and mm -hmm. physics mm -hmm. and viewing that as a closer analogy, as it were, of the divine than anything else she can really find. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was really interesting. I mean, she's a yoga teacher who lives in a cabin in the woods. She's not a scientist at all, but mm. um, I, I love that she's filled with this passion of trying to kind of understand God through just a completely different lens. Yeah. Can you use science at all to have a greater understanding of the divine? Well, yes and no. I mean, lots of people have this sort of nature mysticism where people have sort of contemplated nature and through that gained some knowledge of, of the divine um, through through contemplating nature. And in fact, Baha'u'llah encourages us to do that. So yes, that there are, there, are, there are lots and lots of different pathways to knowledge of God and all of them are valid for those people who find them valid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But for other people, another pathway is, is a valid pathway and their, their truth is a different truth, but it's all truths about God. And um, we, we're simply not capable of raising ourselves to the level where we can encompass all of these different truths 
and gain an overall understanding of God. All we are capable of doing is understanding these different pathways. And, and sciences and, and the natural world are all you know, pathways that, that some people can take and some people find useful and other people shrug off and say, oh, it doesn't mean anything to me. Right, right. I, I know for me, I think some of the most deeply spiritual experiences that I've ever had was and were listening to music. Mm-hmm. And I remember being at a couple of Radiohead concerts and I love the band Radiohead. They're kind of above and beyond any other band vaguely working in rock music, but they're not even really rock. Um, and it, whatever it was that I felt in those concerts, one at the Hollywood Bowl, one at the Greek, one at the Santa Barbara Bowl, that utterly transporting, filled with the miracle of being alive, um, every kind of cell vibrating, filled with just uh, an incredible love in my heart, emotion, connection to not just to the band, but to the audience around me, to the to the being outside, the kind of the beauty of the stars above me. Um, so transporting and invigorating that I was, I know that for me, like if you're going to ask me about my top 10 divine experiences, mm-hmm. like three or four of them were at Radiohead <laughs> concerts and some other concerts as well, mm-hmm. that... It's not an intellectual idea of God, but an experience of living in a kind of having a glimpse of the divine, living in the divine world. It was heavenly in a sense. Yeah. And and Abdu'l-Bahá talks about music as being a ladder for the soul to ascend. So, you know, what you experienced is exactly that, that that music took you up a few steps up (laughs) higher than you had been previously and, and, and just enabled you to experience something somewhat closer to the divine than, than you experience in your everyday life. And yes, lots of people have that. As I say, some people have it from the natural world and, and, and um, do you, yeah. what do you what do you have? Have you what's your <laughs> what's your closest to experience to the divine personally? Um I think really uh, if I'm gonna be truthful, it's actually reading the words of Baha'u'llah and, mm. and, and and you know I just um find them uh, absolutely, um, you know, that is my spiritual experience, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And is there, do you have a favorite writings of Baha'u'llah? I mean, it's, that's a tricky and impossible <laughs> question, but uh, I, is I there a book you go back to again and again? Is there a series of writings? Or? Uh, well, uh, yes. I mean, the, the, the first full book of Baha'u'llah's that I read, I think, was the Kitab Iran, the Book of Certitude. And that's, if I was going to name a book that I go back to, then that's the book. But, but you know, I, I've had the privilege of, of going to um, Haifa and working in the archives department on uh, a, a lot of the work I've done there. I, I go there for just from time to time, once or twice a year for a few weeks and, and work on the um, papers that are in the archives. And a lot of those, of course, are copies of tablets and things that I'm, I'm reading them. I'm helping their, what, what they need, which is cataloging of all the various, you know, they've got boxes and boxes of papers and, and these need cataloging and, and looking through and so on. And a lot of those are tablets. And also I've been in, engaged in a project of reading through the, the tablets that have been transcribed and um, summarizing these and creating abstracts of them. So I've done, I've been doing quite a lot of work on tablets of Baha'u'llah over the last, particularly over the last few have years. Have you stumbled onto some 
new ones sitting in a box or something that... Uh, yes, yeah, yes. There, 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 there have been a few of those. Uh, very, very interesting tablets of Baha'u'llah. Um, I, I think probably the Baha'i world doesn't appreciate quite how... For I'm just giving you one example yeah. here. Uh, how insistent Baha'u'llah was that the Baha'is consult among each other, for example. Ah. In the last few years of his life, tablet after tablet that I read... He, you know, whatever problems the Baha'is presented, he would sort of say, go and consult about this. <laughs> oh. So, he, you know, he, he, he was very, very interested in getting the Baha'i community, whether it was the community that was wanting guidance or, or individuals who came to them with their problems, he would urge them to go and consult. And uh, I just found that really, really interesting that, that he considered that in a sense, Baha'is consulting together were a, a substitute from, for getting guidance from the manifestation of God. You know, For example, there, there's, lots, there's some stories about that as well. One of the hands of the cause, Mirza Hassan Adib, lived in a small town uh, and he'd been thrown out of that town. And he, he came to Haifa and he asked Baha'u'llah, well, well, now that I can't go back to my hometown, where shall I go and live? Now, Baha'u'llah was, had his finger on the pulse of the entire Baha'i community in Iran. He knew the state of every community. He could easily have answered that question. Ah. But no, he said, go back to Iran, consult with the hands of the cause in, in Tehran, and then decide where you're going to live. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's, what is that, raising someone up? Yeah, raising it, capacity? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 that's right. It's, it's sort of getting the Baha'is used to this concept of consultation, used to the fact that, that you know, they're not always going to have a figure that they can turn to for, for guidance, and they should, you know, start this process of learning how to consult, um, because it's, it's, a, it's a difficult process to learn, you know. Abdul Baha writes about it at great length of all the qualities you need, and, and you have to train yourself, and, and, and you know, it's a big thing, and, and Baha'u'llah wanted Baha'is to start doing it. And, and Abdul Baha is exactly the same, you know, he, things would be asked of him, and he would say, you know, consult about it. There's a story about him in, in the United States. There was the convention going on that they had a temple unity, which was a body that was going to build the temple, the, the house of worship in Wilmette. The, 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 this convention was actually going on and Abdul Baha was there in, in Chicago at the time. And somebody found him outside the convention hall and they said, oh, please go in. You know, the Baha'is would love to, 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 to have you address them and, and, and give them advice and guidance and so on. And he said, no, if I go in, they'll just follow what I say. I want them to consult. Mm. So, you know, even, even, you know, even on an important thing like the, the Mashravaz car, the house of worship, Abdul Baha wanted the Baha'is to consult and, and, and raise that above considerations of the fact that he could probably have given them better guidance yeah <laughs> but, yeah but he wanted them to come to, to, to consult and come to decision and, and to learn how to do this this process I, I want to get into consultation a little bit more because it's one of the key points of your work on kind of a sociological exploration of what the Baha'is are doing now what the Baha'is are actually building and consultation is a key foundation stone and what you mm. talk about so put a pin in that one thing about consultation that I find really fascinating in the Baha'i writings is that it's also brought up as a great way of just being in the world. It's not just, I think some Baha'is think of consultation, and I, forgive me, listeners, if I've brought this up before on the, the blogcast, I just find it really revelatory that there are, I think Baha'is sometimes 
think of consultation as something that an LSA or a committee should do in order to come up with a, of what we were going to do for the next holy day or something like that. But it, it is, consultation is so much deeper than that. And it's also really brought up in the Baha'i writings. I've found some, I, I can't, I don't have anything on the tip of my tongue that it's like, it is a valuable way to be in the world, to live one's life in a spirit of consultation. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's um, dealing with addiction issues, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, 12-step uh, stuff. And he's talking, and he was talking about how in the Alcoholics Anonymous and in the 12-step tradition of recovery, that consultation is very highly prized and the addicts are told to consult together that the you know the meetings don't have leaders that the they make decisions by a group conscience but also just in their daily lives they're supposed to consult with others about all things and and decisions that they're making there's so many similarities between the 12 step program and the and the bahai faith on that level that it's it's anti-hierarchical you know it's it's very democratic and consultation is a is a key piece of the puzzle yeah, I think I think the, that this leads into a sort of the overall direction that the Baha'i community is trying to move itself and the world around it, which is moving away from sort of hierarchical societies where direction comes, you know, from the top and is imposed on those below and is, you know, regardless of what they think about things. Uh, and that type of society is, is also very sort of competitive and, and has a lot of conflict built into the system. And Baha'is are trying to move away from that type of society into a society where the operating principles are those of collaboration, cooperation, consultation. These sorts of uh, words are the sort of the operating principles of, of this new type of society. Well, let's go here. Um, now, so this is something you've been thinking a lot about recently. Mm. You've been doing some writings about, besides your other academic works. It's how are the current activities of the Baha'i faith seeking to create a new social structure? I read one paper that you wrote on it, and I, I was really, truly captivated by your ideas. Uh, in your presentation, you talk about how we sometimes don't see the forest for the trees. I think in what we're doing on the ground. And I think it would be really valuable for the listeners to hear your perspective and insight. And the idea that so many people are, and I know so many people in the LA area that are, um, they're so busy hosting a Ruhi, attending a Ruhi, doing a children's class on a weekend, trying to get a devotional gathering together, going to an ATC meeting, like trying, you know, just the busy work of all of these little puzzle pieces that are so difficult to do. I mean, to get people to come and then people don't show up and you have to organize and the, the, the email address and the location, you know, I mean, it's, it can just fill <laughs> yeah, your week. It right. just can fill four nights of your week so easily to be doing these. And we lose track of like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And I think it's so valuable to kind of take the 20,000 foot view of we're building the kingdom of God on earth mm-hmm. in an entirely new way and reconfiguring the social structures and systems that underlie how humanity does everything. So I know I've, I've raved a lot about it, but 
hit us with uh, what you're thinking about. <laughs> okay, well, in summary, um, over a hundred years ago now, um, Baha'u'llah looked at the structure that we have, our, our, our social order, and he says he finds it lamentably defective. Those are his words. And his teachings are really there to provide an alternative to that. So if we're going to sort of try and analyse, well, what is our social structure and what is it about it that's lamentably defective, then the best place to sort of start looking is, is at what some sociologists, the way they've described our social structure. Um, and basically, for over 10,000 years now, human beings have been living in... Uh, not in every part of the world, but in, in increasingly la larger and larger percentage of the world, uh, very hierarchical societies, um, so that now 99% of the world is probably living in these sorts of hierarchical structures, where you have a small number of people at the top, uh, and there's a pyramid of power with uh, the vast majority of the population being at the bottom of the pyramid. And these sorts of uh, hierarchical structures, the, the point about them is that they were actually valuable in the past. It's not that they've been a problem for humanity all along. When human beings were moving from tribal societies into the cities so that we could have civilization, civilization, the very word means moving into cities, they needed hierarchies to be imposed so that order could be kept in a city, you couldn't have tribes fighting each other in the city, so you had to impose order. So hierarchy was a, a very important part of humanity's progress and development, and it allowed civilization to develop. It allowed all of the arts and the sciences and the technology and everything else that we now appreciate uh, and, and have the benefit of to develop over the centuries. But what is now happening is that exactly this social structure that was created so long ago and which we now regard as the norm has become a problem for us. We are now living in the sort of globalised world where we can no longer uh, have these sorts of societies because of the conflict that they inherently possess within them. If you have a hierarchical society, then everyone is competing with everyone else to get to the top of the tree and or the top of the pyramid and this inevitably means that people are in competition with each other that produces conflict within society because different societies are then in conflict with each other different elements within a society are in conflict with each other there are interest groups and all of these things are just continually piling up the levels of conflict and that then goes out into the uh, at, at the broader level into conflict between nations because they're competing with each other for whatever resources, land, etc. And the whole of our social structure is based around conflict and competition. And we've now got to the stage where whatever benefits there may have been from hier these hierarchical societies in the past are now actually turning into problems for us. Um, the, the hierarchical societies that we have, um, the, the conflicts and so on that they generate are now detrimental overall to humanity, whereas in the past, whatever detriment there was was outbalanced by the good that it was doing. Now the detriment is 
is greater than the good that that is coming from such yep. s- uh, structures. And you you say in your in your paper and what I've I've read on this, and this is if you read the culture of contest, the Michael mm-hmm. Carlberg book, yep. which he he touches on this a great deal. But I love this idea that right now what we see happening, what is lamentable, is that the disempowered and disenfranchised are seeking power. And what happens time and time again, like when I was a child, I lived in Nicaragua. So the Sandinistas wanted to liberate through a communist Marxist way, you know, the the farmers and the common workers who are so held down to gain power. But once they gained power in that system, now the, the the political left is even more corrupt than the political right was, you know, 40 years ago. And because... What is also lamentable is that the disempowered seek to gain power in a hierarchy. They, t- they seek to be at the top of the hierarchy. But in so doing, they're not changing the actual system itself. And like you said, the system around us is one based on contest. It's based on consumerism, uh, materialism, profit, militarization, ownership, and control. All of these things are what give someone power. So even if you were to take all the disenfranchised of the world and put them at the top of the hierarchy, you still have a system where the other people would be left disenfranchised and then they'd want to be at the... It's like playing king of the hill, you know, when you're a kid. And as long as you're still playing king of the hill, nothing is going to work out if you're playing within that system. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons that Baha'is don't enter into politics, for example, because if you enter into politics, enter into that competitive, conflictual world, it subverts you. All of these revolutions, like the communist revolutions, the French Revolution in the uh, 18th century, all of them were the, the sort of presupposition was that we were going to get a better society, we were going to get a more equal society, we were going to get a more... Uh, increase the liberty of the individuals, all of these catchphrases of all these different revolutions. But all that happened was that one hierarchy was replaced by another hierarchy. And you ended up with the same problem of these hierarchies. And it's because at the moment, people have difficulty in envisaging anything else because one part of the part of this process of the hierarchy part of the structure of this hierarchy is that it sets the norms the people at the top set the norms they imbue the education system and the legal system and everything else with their values which are those of power and wealth and all of these values that they have and people think this social structure that we have is the norm, so that it just becomes natural for people. If they get a group of people together to do anything, they'll elect a leader from them and the leader will give them orders because that's just the way we've been educated. That's the way we've been... This has been imbued into us from childhood that that's the way it is and and people will use words like common sense or, you know, the natural order or these sorts of things about this. But it's not actually the natural order. It's just something that we have communally decided, communally enforced, if you like. Well, um, we've, had a, we've had a strongman culture since the caveman days. That's right, yes. And, and, and we think that's the norm. We think that's the way human beings have to be. But actually, this is a social structure that we have created. And we can decide to 
change it. It's just that we don't think we're capable of changing it because we think it's common sense. I remember when I was a, a, a child, there was a teacher at my school who, who told us that he thought that war was inevitable, was a natural human thing that, you know, uh, you could never have peace because or human beings because of by human nature. nature. Yep. Yeah, human mm-hmm. nature was competitive. And then he went on to praise war because it had produced so many inventions and innovations and so on. So that, you know, this sort of thinking is, is very, you know, this was a teacher, an intelligent yep. person telling me these things. Um, so well, it's also... Um, forgive me for jumping in. It's also uh, very prevalent to say that anyone who looks at any kind of utopian ideal or changing mm. of human nature and social structures is just naive. Yeah, just, or is a dreamer so it's, or whatever. It's you just know. dismissed yeah. as naivete, which is kind mm. of the greatest insult. It's like when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, people were like, what do you want? World peace. World peace wasn't a dumb answer given by <laughs> someone in a beauty pageant. Like, what do you desire? World peace. It was something people yeah. were thinking about and working yeah. for. Could we have love? All you need is love. And nowadays you can't even talk about that if people just roll their eyes and think that you're just uh, you're just being a child. But before you go on, I just wanted to bring up, I love one of the things in your presentation was about the word victory. You know, mm-hmm. what we think of sociologically, societally, what we think of as victory is being the champion, coming out on top, gaining the power. But Abdu'l-Bahá writes for that, for the Baha'i cause, quote, its victory is to submit and yield. And Baha'u'llah says, these are quotes that you found that I'm poaching. Baha'u'llah said, therefore today, victory neither hath been nor will be opposition to anyone, nor strife with any person but rather what is well-pleasing. This is that the cities of men's hearts, which are under the dominion of the hosts of selfishness and lust, should be subdued by the sword of the word of wisdom and of exhortation. So a completely opposite Mm -hmm. idea of what victory is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the... The overall sort of, um, how shall I say, the overall uh, picture that I'm trying to paint is that we as human beings create our social reality. But then having created it, we forget that we've created it and think that it's the, the way things are, the, the common sense, natural, the, you know, the unchangeable reality. And, and so we sort of live with it, as it were, instead of thinking to ourselves, well, we've created this, we can change it. And this is what Baha'is are trying to do, really. We, we are trying to say to people, look, all of this conflict, all of this competition, all of this hierarchy that, that, that we think is the natural order, the, the way people, things are, the way people are, all of these things are actually things that we have learnt from childhood because of our education system, because it's imbued, because of the political system, because of the legal system, all of these things imbue these values on us, into us. And we think that's the way it is, but it actually isn't. We can change this. We can uh, have an alternative social structure. So what are Baha'is doing to create an alternative social structure? Well, I think... Some nuts and bolts. Well... Obviously, therefore, this is not something that can be imposed from on top because that's just replicating the hierarchical system. So it's grassroots. So so you have to work from the bottom up. And this is what Baha'is in every Baha'i community in all of the countries of the world are doing. They are 
working with individual people and the they have a, a, a sort of a, um, a set of things that they are doing and part of this is a course of a sequence of courses which are designed to help people to start thinking for themselves. You may wonder why that's important, but part of the hierarchical society is that it suppresses the thinking of those at the bottom of the hierarchy. You, are, you, you keep people at the bottom of the hierarchy by just telling them time and again that their thoughts are not valued, their ideas are stupid, they're uneducated, they're Ill, illiterate or whatever. And, even, and, they're, 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 and you keep sorry. them there at the bottom of the hierarchy. And... What, what the Baha'i communities are trying to do is to get people through this sequence of courses, through doing these courses, to start thinking for themselves. You start off by looking at a quotation and just saying, you know, I think this means this. It's a sort of very simple step-by-step process whereby you start people thinking for themselves and start having ideas because at the moment a large percentage of the population just take their ideas from the media, from the television, from newspapers, and they just parrot those because they've been told all their lives that their own thoughts are not worth thinking, that, you know, that they're too stupid to have ideas. They just parrot whatever they hear instead of thinking for themselves. So this, this sequence of courses starts off, the very first part of it is get people thinking about things. They start off by thinking about a quotation in in front of them, what it means to them, how they should live in view of this quotation from the Baha'i scriptures, and so on. And and also having then the confidence to actually voice those thoughts, because again, people are not used to voicing their own ideas. They just voice things that are safe because other people have said them because they've read them in the newspaper. So they think, oh, well, this is safe. I'll say this, instead of actually thinking for themselves and having the courage to voice their thoughts. So this process, these sequence of courses, is helping people to, first of all, start thinking for themselves, secondly, have the confidence to voice those thoughts, and and then thirdly, to consult with other people about those ideas. So it's building up the capacity of every individual from the sort of grassroots upwards to think for themselves, to voice their thoughts, to consult with each other, all of these very basic skills that are needed and if also, we're going to build a new world order. And also the next phase of the Ruhi classes, which is is to put that into practice. Yes. The consultation so, so, moving so, into yeah. actual service yeah. in the community. So so then you, you, you then start sending people out to do service in the community, and whether that's you know, doing children's classes or junior youth activities, empowerment activities, home visits, home visits devotional meetings, all of these things then start people actually looking at their society, looking around them, thinking about what they're doing and what society is doing and so on. And in the process, they so they're not they're not just having thoughts now they they're, they're having they're not just having ideas they're having ideas that are actually about their community about their society mm-hmm. about what's going on around them and 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 so they're having ideas that they can then bring to the reflection meetings that bahais have uh, every 3 months or so and at the reflection meeting they they're bringing they're feeding in their ideas their thoughts their their um uh ideas about how to take this process forward um, and uh, so, so they're not just bringing up 
random ideas. They're actually having ideas about their community, about their society, about what's going on in the Baha'i community, about what's going on in the wider society. And they're generating, in the course of the consultation, ideas that are, uh, are useful, that are relevant, that are, are, are going to take this whole process forward and bring more and more people into it. Well, I love that. I, the, what you're hitting on with Ruhi, which I hadn't fully thought about before, is how empowering it is for the participants. Um, when I was a Baha'i kid in the 70s, my dad was very active as a Baha'i, and he was a really terrific Baha'i speaker. And there was a kind of a, a circuit of firesides and Baha'i devotionals where usually white males, um, you know, in their 40s to 60s, uh, there were seven or eight of them, let's say, in the Pacific Northwest that were asked to kind of go around and do firesides and do the talks and kind of do the work and be on the district teaching committee or whatever. And the Baha'i community was simply reflecting the hierarchical structures of the outside world. Um, nothing against my dad. He was a really a servant of Baha'u'llah and he was, he was a great speaker and he tried to serve and it's great, you know, there's nothing bad about these people at all. It just, we were inheriting a system automatically without really thinking about it. I know a lot of people that have resisted the Ruhi almost long for that old system. They long, a lot of times, uh, especially online, you'll, you'll find that people that are resistant to it are the ones who were in that position where they were at the top of the hierarchy. They were the ones that were chairmen of assemblies or asked to speak a lot. Well, and also I think people are just comfortable with what they knew when they grew up. You know, people sort of have a nostalgic feel for the past. And, and every time, you know, any time that there's any change, there's always a bit of resistance to change because human beings basically don't like to change. So even though, you know, what, what, what the Baha'i community is now trying to do is to actually put into place the teachings that Baha'u'llah brought us uh, over a century ago and which uh, you know have, are there in his tablets we are we're actually trying to actualize those in our communities to have communities that are consulting together that are collaborative that are that are cooperating that are, are taking the faith forward even though we're trying to do that a lot of Baha'is still think of the the communities that they knew when they were growing up and uh, the sort of hark back to those with a certain sort of nostalgia and and it's just human nature to be to be resistant to change because we don't change makes us uncomfortable but change i think is, it's i think it's a little deeper than that i do personally mm -hmm. i think that back in the 70s there were let's say people that made the cookies for baha'i gatherings and that's how they served the faith there's nothing wrong with making cookies for baha'i gatherings not meaning to be disparaging at all but they were a little disempowered. And in the new way of doing things, we want to hear from everyone. We sure. want to hear from the people who make the cookies. We want to hear from the people that mop the Baha'i Center. We want to hear from the shyer people, the quieter people, the voices that aren't heard as much. Women and people of color, people that have been maybe disenfranchised in other ways by society, uh, their voices can be heard through the institute process and through the consultative process, like you described. And that I think that's threatening to some people. Um, yeah. It's certainly a, a major shift. 
Yeah, and and uh, I think we're seeing it, you know, playing out in the Baha'i community at the moment. And I mean, you mentioned women and, and people of colour and so on. This is, you know, those are precisely the people who are at the bottom of the hierarchy in the past. And this process is, is bringing them out. You know, the Universal House of Justice talks about raising capacity. Well, that's exactly what this is doing. It's raising their capacity so that they do, do then feel confident to speak out and, and to voice their opinions and to and to take a full, um, how should I say, responsibility for all the work that needs to be done in the Baha'i community is now being shared amongst everyone rather than just a, a select few people who, who in the past may have done these things. And this then gives a, a voice to those people at the bottom of the, of the hierarchy, uh, at the bottom of the pyramid of power, and, and enables the Baha'i community really to raise itself to a new level of activity because instead of just having two or three people in each community active, you have the whole community active and, and doing things. And so you're, you're really multiplying your centres of activity uh, in, a, in a, almost an exponential way because they then drag other people in and so forth. Uh, my dad, and I think I've told, I have a very limited number of stories that have been told on all these podcasts that I've done. But my dad had a great story where he was uh, teaching a fireside and there were some born-again Christians from a very particular church. And they said, well, you know, we're building the kingdom of God on earth. And again, forgive me if I've said this before, but and my dad said, well, what, what, was, what would that be like? And they said, well, we believe that in the future, the clouds will open, the sky will open, and Jesus will appear on a cloud and there'll be a shining city of silver and gold and trumpets will blare and the the saved will go up onto this city and that's the kingdom of of God on earth and the city will float away and they said to my dad well you know what do you guys believe about about this and my dad said well we believe too in building the kingdom of God on earth and in our view the it just starts the same way the sky rumbles and the clouds open and there's a, a a crack in the sky and then down through the sky falls a bunch of bricks and bags of cement and some shovels and then a, a piece of paper floats down from the sky and lands on the top and it says kingdom of god on earth do it yourself kit <laughs> um and i i love that he told that story and i i retell it a lot because i i think that's that's what it's going to take and it's yeah. it's really really difficult work Yes, and now, I mean, this sort of new culture within the Baha'i community has been gradually being developed. Uh, the Universal House of Justice started the process in 1996, but it's taken quite a while for it to get embedded in the Baha'i community. But it is now starting to really feel as though it's embedded. And the, the new culture is one where not only is it that people are, are um, as it were, Everyone is building their own capacity, building the capacity of others, helping each other, cooperating, collaborating, consulting. All of these sorts of processes are, are, are becoming more and more um, embedded in the Baha'i community and more and more people are trained to, do, to be able to do it. But we've also developed what the Universal House of Justice has called the culture of learning, which is that as Baha'is, we're no longer thinking... because. If, if we go back 30 years ago, Baha'is thought of themselves as having the answer to all of the problems of the world. And what this process has ta taught us is that it's not so much that we've got the answers, but what we've got is a process whereby the whole of humanity can come together and consult 
and at both the local level and the national level and the international level, they can come up with the answers through a consultative process. So it's, it's not that we've got the answers. What we've got is a method for getting to the answers that will be truly representative of everyone, that will pull everyone in t- together, that will raise the capacity of everyone. And it's not one where there are set answers to every question. Answers emerge, they are tested you know, in real life, some, some, someone suggests something, mm-hmm. everyone says, yes, that's a good idea, let's try it. You try it, and then you come back a few months later, and you say, well, did it work? Did it not work? If it didn't work, well, what can we do better? So you're, you're constantly developing your answer and improving on it. And so it's, it's an ongoing project always to, to get better and better answers. So there's not one answer that's going to be okay for the entire world. Every community is coming together, creating answers, testing those answers, yeah. creating new answers, new plans, and so on. So it's a, this culture of learning is it's a very scientific thing because that's this is exactly the same as the scientific method, method is exactly yeah. the same. You create a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, you look at your answers that you got from that experiment. And then you create a new hypothesis. So I, I know it's in, exactly the same. Sorry, I keep yeah. interrupting you. Yeah, I, yeah, I know no, you no, said fine. such great stuff. Um, but it just gets me really excited because I love talking about this. Um, I know that in our cluster outside of Los Angeles, 10, 10, 12, 13 years ago, we were going door to door doing Anna's presentation. And we were trying to get core activities going. And we went into all different kinds of communities and in this culture of learning, we found in our cluster, I can't speak for other clusters, but that the most receptive communities were Hispanic and they lived in a certain kind of area. Um, it's not to say there weren't other receptive people, but just the most receptive were Hispanic parents wanted generally, culturally, in, in this particular subset, to have positive, productive things for their teen kids to be doing and really love the idea of the junior spiritual empowerment programs and we're very supportive of it. So we've put that into place in a couple of different neighborhoods through exactly this process over the years. And then it it just happened again this last year. It's like, well, let's take what we've learned in our cluster. Let's target this other city. We went to Moore Park. Let's do the same thing that has worked in other places and go to Moore Park and try it out there. Sure enough, they went to Moore Park to a similar kind of neighborhood, found really receptive parents and teens, got them together, started youth groups. They immediately said, had all kinds of ideas how they wanted to serve their community. They wanted to clean up the nearby riverbed. They wanted to do a bake sale for this. They want, you know, now they're doing stuff around the fires in California. And it's, it's literally... The proof is in the pudding, you know. Mm-hmm. We've learned these things through that scientific method and, and are able now, in a very limited capacity, but in a heartening one and an inspiring one, to put those into practice and to be raising capacity and building community. Yeah, yeah. That, that, and I think that's uh, that's going on in all different parts of the world. I'm, the, I'm, I'm sure many of uh, people listening to this have, have, have seen the, the films that the... Uh, Universalis of Justice has, has brought out um, uh, latest one is called uh, Widening Embrace mm-hmm. and and, uh, and you can see there that exactly this process is going on in, in all sorts of different parts of the world in all sorts of different settings urban settings, rural settings so in one sense it's a single process uh, 
that, that the House of Justice is, is, as it were, directing and managing and guiding, but at the actual individual uh, community level, it's, it's, it can be manifold, it can be lots of different things that are appropriate to that area, that reflect the culture of that area, that reflect the capacities of the Baha'i community in that area and what they're capable of doing. Uh, so, so in one sense, it's a single program. In a sense, it's, it's thousands of individual programs. Mm. Oh, that's a good because point. They're, because they're, they're, they're adapting to the local circumstances and, and, and the culture of learning enables them to, to do whatever's appropriate for that area. That's, that's great. Well, there's so much more to say. Um, we'll put the link up to your paper okay. um, about this. And I trust that maybe there'll be more papers or books or studies or talks uh, about this coming down the pike. Uh, yes, there, there, there's a, a couple of things that are in the pipeline. Yes. Okay, great, great. And you and your wife have a website. Yes. What is that? Momen dot... Uh, yes, momen.org. Momen.org. And it has links to a lot of your writings and books and stuff like that. Uh, yes, some, some of them, yeah. So, there's, well, well, there's copyright issues. You can't just put everything up. So, right, right. So, but so, links yes. to buy your books yeah. as well and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So those are some great things to, to check out. And I encourage the listeners to, to check out your, your vast oeuvre of, of work, both historical and sociological. And really, thank you so much. It's been such a, a pleasure and honor to talk to you and hear these exciting new concepts that you're playing with right now. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure being here and talking with you. And uh, thank you. Thanks so much for coming down to Chelsea. So long, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.